from NHPR. This is Stranglehold, a podcast about the New Hampshire primary. I'm Jack Rodolico. Lately, our team of reporters has spent a lot of time in this one office in the State House. This office, it's about the size of a large bedroom, dark carpet, whitish walls, a couple desks where state employees work, a bookshelf covered with dated phone books. Normally, this office, it's not a place to be. But that all changed about two weeks ago. That's when the 2020 campaign wormed its way right through the doors and turned this office into an all-but-necessary campaign stop, just like it does every four years. Reporting as ordered. Welcome back. Good to be. How are you, man? Good to see you. Former Vice President Joe Biden stopped by this office. So did Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on down the line. It's an honor to be able to come to New Hampshire again. And, you know, this is this is the ultimate democracy. People actually show up. As I speak, we're in the final hours of what's known as the filing period. It's a deadline for candidates who want to get their names on the primary ballot here in New Hampshire. And this office is where that all goes down. Really, filing for the New Hampshire primary is the smallest of bureaucratic hurdles. Sign a form and cut a check to the Secretary of State for a thousand bucks. Candidates don't even have to do it in person. They can just mail in their paperwork. But most candidates do show up in person. It's a photo op, one of many on the campaign trail. But it's an even bigger opportunity for the man they're all coming to see. This is a chance for New Hampshire Secretary of State, Bill Gardner, to take the stage for a moment, too. Perfect opportunity to let them know the tradition here, how it happened, why. And but I've always done that over the years when candidates have come in. You know, once every four years, this two-week period is really where, you know, Bill Gardner is going to get uninterrupted time in front of the national press, in front of a potential president. Josh Rogers is the political reporter I go to when I don't understand something about politics. He's covered the New Hampshire State House since 2000, and this is his fifth primary. He's seen a lot. And Josh says when it comes to Bill Gardner and this filing event that happens in his office every four years, it's a chance for Gardner to define the primary as he sees it. It's a story of inclusiveness and to keep the American dream alive that anyone's son or daughter could grow up to be president. New Hampshire does make it easy for candidates to get on the ballot here. There aren't many hoops to jump through. And the reasons that the candidates show up in person to do this really easy thing, well, that speaks to how much sway this little state has in the 2020 race. But there's something else at play here, too. Not every candidate is making the trip this time around. And the reasons they're skipping out might tell us something about how the race to the White House is changing. Gardner's held his office for 43 years, making him the longest-serving Secretary of State in the country. Our whole first episode was about Gardner, how he built his power, how he uses that power, and how some would say he misuses his power. Go check it out. 
But for now, all you need to know is that he's in charge of the state's elections, and that means he's been holding these public filings in his office for decades. There is a stagecraft to what happens here. It starts in the hallway that leads to the Secretary of State's office. Often hours before a candidate arrives at the State House, supporters start lining that hallway. And at the moment they catch the first glimpse of their candidate, everyone starts chanting. The candidate walks down through the corridor, slapping backs, shaking hands. They take selfies. There are campaign signs everywhere, all around them. I mean, I wouldn't say like walking down the aisle exactly, but they're walking down the corridor, often being presented to the secretary of state, to the officiant of the primary. The bigger the candidate, the bigger the crowd that tends to greet them. This mass of people pushes down the corridor with the candidate in the lead, and then it kind of narrows and funnels through a pinch point the door to the Secretary of State's office. When a candidate enters the Secretary of State's office, the Secretary of State is typically standing at the door. He greets them. In there, sometimes a staffer has to stand on her desk just to glimpse the candidate, who's maybe 10 feet away. All eyes are on the candidate and on Gardner. He's, you know, kind of a clerical-looking man, and he has props that he's using to make the case why what we do here in New Hampshire is special in his estimation. Props. One prop is a desk, a really old desk, used by the lawmaker who created the primary. person who sponsored the legislation. This guy. Well, then this is his desk, is that right? And this is his desk. Yes, I read about that. And that ballot Another prop Gardner likes? Ballot boxes. He points out that some towns in New Hampshire have been using the same ballot boxes for 100 years. These things look very hard to tamper with or hack. You can't hack a pencil. <laughs> yeah, you can't hack a pencil on a wood ballot box. He's in front of a bank of cameras. I mean, there, there are news organizations streaming this live. Remember, we're in a room where the walls are decorated with um, photos of past uh, primaries, sometimes shots from within this office. So there's this kind of you know, hall of mirrors effect in a way. He seems to sort of be making the case to the cameras through the candidate that New Hampshire is a great place to have the first primary because we've got this history here and because we take it so seriously. Absolutely. So the image Gardner is creating for the press is that of the master imparting a teaching to a presidential disciple. It's self-serving. This whole scene is great for him politically. He's standing next to everyone. They've all come To him. And these candidates, senators and governors and mayors and vice presidents, they all go along with it. Do they really care about the history of the New Hampshire primary? Maybe. Do they care about looking as though they are deferential to the New Hampshire primary? Probably. This is supposed to go back to Eisenhower. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard punctuated each of Gardner's lessons with a superlative. Incredible. Incredible. Amazing. It's amazing history. But they uh-huh. had no direct vote. Uh-huh. So in 1950... Senator Amy Klobuchar delivered a steady stream of uh-huhs. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And Minnesota just got rid of it. Uh-huh. So we ended up by the, the fall. And uh-huh. 
South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg kept repeating this little zinger. How about that? How about that? Indiana was. Indiana. Really? How about that? Thank you. That's all it took. How about that? <laughs> So the cameras are clicking away. Gardner takes each candidate through the history of the primary from 1913 all the way up to today. And then they hand over the money, sign a form, and it's official. Their name will be on the New Hampshire ballot. And what exactly are the candidates getting out of this beyond the photo op? Like I said, they don't have to do this in person. They can send their check in the mail. But if they did it that way, they wouldn't get Gardner's public seal of approval. Uh, you're official. <laughs> you're official. <laughs> you know, they may have been running for months or even years, but at this moment, you know, it is new again. Maybe this sounds to you like some kind of parochial tradition that candidates just grin and bear through. Or maybe you see some kind of deeper meaning here. Either way... Let me tell you something indisputable. There is a leveling effect at play here. By recreating this moment again and again, Gardner is knocking big candidates down a peg, and he's giving a little lift to the candidates whose campaigns are flailing. Not in a way that will swing or even nudge the race. It won't. But the imagery he creates is powerful. Every candidate who chooses to walk through Gardner's door They all seem to stand shoulder to shoulder, just for a moment. And that's by design. This primary has always been about the little guy. And we make it as easy as we can. And it gives the person who doesn't have the most fame or fortune the opportunity to have a chance. New Hampshire does make it easy to get on the ballot. And that means Gardner's doors are open to not just the little guy, but also the littlest guy. What does that mean? Well, I'm not talking about a congressman who isn't polling high enough to make the debate stage. I'm talking about candidates on the fringe. You do not know how difficult it is best ballot access across the United States. New Hampshire is the easiest state in the country. Like Rocky De La Fuente, a California man who says he got rich selling cars, He's going to be on the Republican ballot in the New Hampshire primary, listed there with Donald Trump. And when he had a chance to bend Gardner's ear, he spent a chunk of time talking about this picture of him that he didn't like on Wikipedia. And he put the stupid picture for two years in a row, and I couldn't do nothing to remove it. I would remove it in Wikipedia, put it back in, remove it, put it back in. There are a lot of guys like De La Fuente, candidates with no real campaign or supporters, who come into Gardner's office prepared to spend $1,000 of their own money just to be listed on the ballot. And some of these fringe candidates are fringier than the rest, like the conspiracy theorist who showed up just before Joe Biden filed and insisted on being listed on the ballot as Rod Epstein didn't kill himself Weber. R-O-D, Epstein didn't, D-I-D-N-T, kill, K-I-L-L. Roderick or Rod? Gardner did not let him on the ballot. Can't use a multi-word nickname. That's state law. These moments in the Secretary of State's office can be absurd. I mean, a dozen TV cameras waiting for Biden, filming this instead. If you turn me away a second time, I will file a lawsuit. I filed a lawsuit against Trump. Uh, in the 25th- 
But they are proof that Gardner keeps his doors wide open to anyone who wants to run for president. And once they're through his doors and they've signed the forms and paid the fee, he directs the candidate to a back room. Gardner has national reporters stand while local reporters get prime seats at a table with the candidate. NHPR is almost always at that table, too. We play the game. And often the first question, inevitably from a local reporter, is some variation on, so you're going to win the primary? You're going to win the New Hampshire primary? We're counting on it. Well, uh, I think it's, it's all about speaking to New Hampshire voters about how your life... And then they're done. They leave. They're on the ballot. If they're lucky and they're riding high in the polls, the chaos will follow the candidate outside, where campaign staff have spent hours preparing a stage for a rally. That's a really great photo op. Cheering supporters with the Capitol's glistening gold dome just above their heads. Uh, we've been at it for a good year or so, but this, uh, this feels different. We are officially a candidate in the New Hampshire primary for president of the United States. So we've been talking about the candidates who made the trip to Bill Gardner's office. But there are a few who've skipped the pilgrimage this time around. Senator Kamala Harris and former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. They are running for president. They got their names on the New Hampshire ballot. But they did it by mail or having a staffer drop it off. They skipped the Gardner show. So if it means something when candidates show up, what does it mean when they don't? The notable thing about Castro is he's not filing here, not doing terribly well in the polls here or in Iowa, but he's making the case that, you know, perhaps Iowa and New Hampshire have had a good run being the leadoff states and, you know, we ought to move to uh, states that are more demographically and ethnically diverse. We can't say to black women, oh, thank you, thank you, you're the ones that are powering our victories in places like Alabama and in 2018, and then turn around and start our nominating contest in the two states that have barely any black people in them. As an argument we're familiar with, uh, it's interesting to hear it out of the mouth of a candidate in the heat of a campaign. And um, as Why is that interesting? Well, you know, Maybe it's a sign of desperation, but is it somebody willing to go there who still hopes to uh, win support of voters in Iowa and New Hampshire? And, you know, there is a diversity issue here in his mind. Castro makes these comments in Iowa and immediately it gets a reaction here in New Hampshire. There are local politicos who play the role of primary defenders and they felt the need to push back. Let me just read you these quotes. Here's one from Ray Buckley longtime chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, quote, I can imagine he, Castro, is frustrated, but blaming his campaign's challenges on the voters of Iowa and New Hampshire is a bit much. Now here's a Republican. This is Tom Rath, a bit of an elder statesman in New Hampshire politics, as you know, Josh, quote, it is not geography or demographics, but your lack of relevance that brought you, Julian Castro, to where you are or aren't. I mean, you could see these comments as um, being protective of the primary, of, you know, kind of kicking somebody when they're down, of taking offense at something that they believe besmirches the state's reputation. But it's also hard not to see it as, 
you know, a warning to other candidates, uh, you know, watch your step if you're going to go there. So what is the risk to New Hampshire in that scenario? Well, I mean, the demographics of the state are the demographics of the state. And, you know, if you have a candidate uh, running in a Democratic primary, I mean, it's less of an issue for Republicans, frankly. But if you have a candidate running the Democratic primary, making that point and that argument takes hold and becomes more regularly vocalized, particularly by candidates, you know, that could be bad news for New Hampshire. So, Josh, to your point, what we've had here is Castro makes a comment that's not exactly complimentary of the New Hampshire primary. The New Hampshire defenders uh, sort of send a shot out over the bow, and then reporters start going to the top polling uh, Democratic candidates and asking them, hey, what do you think about New Hampshire and Iowa? Well, you know, I think uh, that the role of uh, all four early primary states really creates that balance and makes sure that uh, candidates have to visit different kinds of states and speak to diverse constituencies. They are first. That's what they are now. It's not going to change, and i got to win them both. But should it change? No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm not going to get into that, that discussion. Wait, Look, let, they, me, let me just, before you finish, are you actually going to ask me to sit here and criticize Iowa and New Hampshire? <laughs> no, I'm asking about the order. No, that is what Iowa but, and New but Hampshire let me are just all about. Ask. Well, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren are all doing pretty well in New Hampshire. And Buttigieg is rising in the polls. I mean, he was perhaps had the most nuanced argument about, you know, an overall balance between the four early states, meaning Iowa and New Hampshire, and then a little bit more diversity in terms of Nevada and South Carolina. But I've really valued, especially in the context of this bus tour, the special role that New Hampshire plays. And And Joe Biden, he's certainly not going to, you know, say anything uh, critical of New Hampshire. The people of Iowa are extremely informed, as are the people in, uh, in, in New Hampshire. Are they representative historically and practically based on race and creed and color uh, of, of the nation? No, they're not. Um, but that doesn't mean they, don't, they shouldn't play a, a major part. And look, one of the reasons you why... You know, Warren, she's riding high in the polls. She's you know, from a neighboring state. She stands to benefit here. I'm just a player in the game. On this one. And I am delighted to be in South Carolina. Thank you. So, Josh, putting all that aside, here's another person who will not be coming to New Hampshire to file for the New Hampshire primary, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. What do we know about him? Well, we know that um, he's said to be looking very seriously at a run. Now, new reporting says Bloomberg plans to skip the first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina, and instead Focus on March 3rd, known as Super Tuesday. We're nearly certainly the idea of a vastly wealthy candidate deciding I don't need to go through the early states to get elected and I have the means to potentially run a truly national campaign. You know, that's another threat to life as we've known it in New Hampshire. We have no idea whether that threat is meaningful at this point, but certainly conceptually. You know, anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows that there are a couple things that come up again and again throughout history in terms of the threats or the perceived threats here in New Hampshire and early states. One is the idea that a national primary would be very bad for a small state like New Hampshire, that we wouldn't get the recognition from presidential candidates. Also, the idea that New Hampshire doesn't have a very good answer to the question, what about diversity, right? Um, Both of those things are at play in an active way in the presidential campaign right now. I mean, it's when the candidates stop showing up 
in my mind, is the truest barometer of whether New Hampshire has lost any relevance. And, you know, we're in no position to know that right now, but we do have candidates who didn't show up to file, and we now have a, can- a potential candidate who's saying his plans don't include New Hampshire, period. And we don't know whether he's going to end up running, but it is the failure to show up that will ultimately determine the relevance of New Hampshire is as soon as candidates don't see the need to come here and to participate and to honor the traditions of the primary, that's going to be a problem for the future of the primary. This episode of Stranglehold was produced by me, Jack Rodolico. Stranglehold is edited by NHPR's Director of Content, Maureen McMurray, and News Director, Dan Barrick. Additional reporting and editing in this episode by Casey McDermott, Josh Rogers, and Lauren Chuljan. Sound mixing by Rebecca Lavoie and Sarah Plord made our beautifully aggressive podcast graphics. Original music composed and performed by Jason Moon and Lucas Anderson. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Stranglehold is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 